All right, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me uh, to Mark chapter 14. This is a non sequitur. That means it does not follow. I did not come up with this because Camilla and Jim are betraying us and going to South Carolina. (laughs) I wanted this. The beginning of this message is very serious, so um, just wanted to kind of set that set that aside. Have you ever been betrayed by someone you loved? Have you ever been betrayed by someone you loved? There is no doubt that for some of you, the very question I'm raising this morning brings about some of the most painful memories imaginable. There's perhaps no more heinous or reprehensible thing than for someone who is in your inner circle of trust to betray you. For some of you, according to statistics, that means that you were sexually abused by someone who is supposed to be entrusted with protecting you, with care for you. For others of you, as a friend that sold you out to get what they wanted. Some of you are here today and you've been so deeply wounded and hurt in the past that apart from the grace of God getting you through from day to day, you fear it would be impossible to survive the kind of agony and betrayal you have faced in your life. A spouse has walked out after decades of marriage. A parent betrayed you, abandoned you. These thoughts are sobering. And the repressed feelings sometimes are better off kept in the box, deep down where nobody else can see them, and you don't have to deal with them on the day-to-day. And so I'm asking you today to consider, in whatever measure you are able to unpack some measure of those feelings to consider that our Lord Jesus felt the same way too. We come today to a passage of Scripture that drips with the deep and dark poison of betrayal. And instead of us just kind of reading this and studying and be like, you know, I know this story. Yep, he was betrayed with a kiss. I want us to pause and reflect on the fact that that kiss was from a friend. In the inner circle, Jesus was betrayed by one he loved. So with those sobering and somber thoughts and hearts set in that tune, let us keep the agony of betrayal of a dear friend in mind as we stand for the reading of God's word today from Mark chapter 14. I'll be reading verses 43 through 52. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. With him was a mob with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. His betrayer had given them a signal. The one I kiss, he said. He's the one. Arrest him and take him away under guard. So when he came, immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. They took hold of him and arrested him. One of those who stood by drew his sword, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his ear. Jesus said to them, 
Have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I was among you, teaching in the temple, and you didn't arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all deserted him and ran away. Now a certain young man wearing nothing but a linen cloth was following him. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth behind and ran away naked. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Father, would you use this message in your holy scripture to instruct our hearts? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Judas portrays the depths of human treachery. So if you're following along in your outline today, Jesus was betrayed, first of all, by treachery. I want you to note right at the outset that Judas is the only named antagonist in Mark's gospel, in this text that we've read today. Once again, like the beginning of chapter 14, Mark is not interested in filling in all the details of the other actors. He is intended in highlighting the main protagonist, Jesus, and the antagonist, Judas. There are hosts of other characters in this text that were left nameless that are named in other gospels. For example, who was in the arresting party? Who was the high priest's servant? Who struck the high priest's servant? Who was the young man who fled? All of these details are left, I believe, intentionally de-emphasized. It is in the sea of nameless individuals that Judas's name stands out in stark contrast, in relief against the nameless ones who have come to arrest Jesus. Mark further identifies Judas, the main antagonist, as one of the twelve in verse 43. There's only one reason to do that. Like, Mark knows who Judas was, and he knows the readers already know who Judas is. What he's doing is drawing attention to this agonizing reality. Judas was one of the twelve disciples. That's already been established in the gospel. But he throws that detail in to remind us. A month ago, I pointed out that Judas was called by Jesus, just like the other 11. For three years, he saw all of Jesus's miracles. He ate with Jesus and talked with Jesus. He heard Jesus teach with authority. He saw Jesus calm the wind and the waves. Judas had his feet washed by Jesus. And in all likelihood, I would argue he was sitting next to Jesus on the other side. John was on one and Judas on the other at the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. What is the point? Jesus was betrayed by outright treachery by someone he loved and invested in and had revealed himself to. Even the way Judas betrayed Jesus lives as one of the most infamous ways to betray someone, right? We get our phrase, the kiss of death, from this background of this story. The kiss of death. That Greek verb in verse 45 for the kiss that Judas gave to Jesus is in the intensive form. 
the intensive form of the verb. One commentary describes Judas's kiss not as a brief peck on the cheek, but a kiss lavishly bestowed, signifying especially deep sense of affection and honor. It was hypocrisy with a vengeance. So there are three things I've said about this kiss. It was a prearranged sign used to identify Jesus. Do you see that in verse 44? His betrayer had given them the signal. A prearranged sign. And it was a prolonged kiss of affection, feigned affection. The kind of kiss you give to your dearest and deepest friend. And thirdly, it was a prostitution of one of humanity's sacred symbols of friendship and respect. In the words of one commentator, there was hell there. There was hell in the kiss. A little poem in that commentary. Judas, dost thou betray me with a kiss? Canst thou find hell about my lips and miss of life at the gates of life and bliss? Judas's infamous kiss showed how low a human heart can go in outright rejection of Jesus, which causes me to pause and ask you today, friend, are you close enough to Jesus that you could kiss him, so to speak? And would you dare to do so with the intent to walk away and reject him for all of eternity? Like some of you come week in and week out. You hear me preach the good news that Jesus died for your sins. Jesus rose again on the third day that you could have eternal life. You might have heard every single message I've preached from the the gospel of Mark. That you know who Jesus is. The Messiah. The Son of God. You're close enough you could kiss him. But in your heart, you're like Judas. Wanting only what you can get from Jesus. And plotting only to use Jesus if it benefits you. For those of you that that might ring today, I want you to hear Jesus loves you. Jesus loved Judas. I beg you today, do not treacherously betray Jesus Christ. Moving on to verses 47 through 49, we see a different kind of betrayal taking place. If Jesus was betrayed by Judas with outright treachery, it seems to me he was also betrayed by misrepresentation. This has more than likely happened to you before. Some well-meaning friend of yours starts yapping, saying things on your behalf you really don't want them out there saying. All of a sudden, you are getting in trouble by the hands of someone else for something you never even asked for. Like, you don't need to stick up for me. Like, the, a lighthearted example of this is the wide receiver on the team, you know that one wide receiver that wants to yip about how their quarterback is the best quarterback ever and we're going to trounce the team? And the quarterback's over there saying, dude, you're just giving them locker room material. Keep your mouth shut. I don't need your help. I don't want you out there saying these things. And he pays for it by getting sacked time and time again in the big game. We end up facing the consequences of somebody else's actions that we never asked for. I think in a much more meaningful way, this is what happens when we read verse 47. One of those who stood by drew his sword, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his ear. This attack of the high priest's servant is recorded in all 
four Gospels. And details are notably sparse here in Mark's Gospel. And if you've ever studied the relationship with the Gospels, for some of you that get interested in those kinds of things, like the theories of which one of them was written first, you should know the church fathers thought Matthew was written first. Uh, There's also some recent scholarship that would maybe say that Mark was written first. They call that Markan priority. Now, it's kind of beside the point of the message, but I will say that if Matthew was, in fact, written first, that would explain why Mark didn't feel the need to fill in all the details. Just a point to ponder for some of you who have studied that topic. It's a little tangent this morning. Nevertheless, we do know who it was that struck the high priest servant, and we do know the name of the high priest servant. We get that from John. John's gospel ultimately identifies the attacker as Peter and the servant as Malchus. Apparently, Jesus' disciples had asked if they should defend him with swords. Peter didn't even wait for the reply. He just, and it's gone. It's on the ground. So we could argue that Peter misrepresented Christ's mission. We learn from other accounts, Jesus rebuked Peter, and he healed Malchus's ear. He told him, and Matthew's gospel records it for us, Do you think I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? And that's where the kind of connecting point in Mark's gospel, you have that same, but the scriptures must be fulfilled, right? And we don't have to leave Mark's gospel to know Jesus saw this whole betrayal happening as a fulfillment of God's divine plan. He was obviously not going to be resisting arrest. It had to happen. So if you stop and think about it, Peter's rash actions would have destroyed Christ's mission to rescue the bride. John Calvin said about Peter, no thanks to him that Christ was not kept from death and that his name, meaning Christ, was not a perpetual disgrace, that he was thought of as just another rebel, just another criminal. It all goes to show us how easy it is to be out of step with Christ when we think we are serving him, when we think we are defending him. Warren Wearsby said, Peter did a foolish thing by attacking Malchus, for we do not fight spiritual battles with physical weapons. I'm going to repeat that. We do not fight spiritual battles with physical weapons. He used the wrong weapon at the wrong time for the wrong purpose and with the wrong motive. Had Jesus not healed Malchus, Peter would have been arrested as well. This is Wearsby's theory. And there might have been four crosses on Calvary. So friend, I ask you, do you ever misrepresent Jesus? Do you ever get out of step with his mission? You think you're defending him, but perhaps your argument is resting on the wrong premise. Like the proverbial, your ladder's on the wrong wall moment. Are you fighting for Jesus' cause or are you fighting for your own cause and attaching Jesus' name to it? It's a good cause for us to reflect today. May the Lord help us to learn to seek his will before we speak or act on his behalf. You could say that Peter thought he had the right motive. Fight for the kingdom of God and the establishment of Jesus' rulership. But he was not in sync with the master's will or with the scripture. Similarly, you could argue the arresting party themselves thought they had the right motives. They were operating under the premise of Caiaphas, who is 
said that it's better for one man to die for the people than we all lose our place and this whole thing go to pots because the Romans come in and squelch some sort of uprising. The arrest party, I would argue, misrepresented Christ's character. They misrepresented Christ's character. So they were happy to betray Jesus by misrepresenting him if it meant saving their nation from the Romans who would come to crush the seeming uprising of the people. And I picked up on this in Mark's gospel where Jesus asked those who come out to arrest him, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to capture me? And that word for criminal in the Greek is leistes, leistes, which the CSB offers a footnote. If you look in your footnote in the Bible, mine, verse 48, footnote A, that word criminal could also mean insurrectionist. That's because later the use of that term leistes was always synonymous with a zealot or insurrectionist. Some translations use the more literal um, robber or bandit, but I don't think that's quite right because Jesus wasn't stealing anything. More accurate... uh, He was not a revolutionary either, but more accurate is this misrepresentation as either a revolutionary leading some sort of rebellion, the more general renegade, outlaw, or criminal. That word cloud is what Jesus means when he says, are you coming after me like I'm leading a rebellion, like I'm a rebel? R.T. France notes that the way Jesus uses the word here adds to the irony then later in this gospel in chapter 15 when he's, when he's crucified between two, lestai is the Greek way of saying it, lestes, right? He's got two criminals, two rebels, in between which he will be crucified. And he had distanced himself from the zealot ideology. I think this is part of what it means when Jesus says, Scripture must be fulfilled. Luke's gospel picks up on this connection and makes the connection that I'm, I'm drawing here plain. In Luke chapter, uh, or in Luke's gospel, he refers us to Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 53 of Isaiah, where scripture says, Therefore I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he willingly submitted to death, speaking of the servant who would go to death, and was counted among the rebels. This is the fulfillment of scripture. Jesus was counted among the insurrectionists, the outlaws, the rebels. Yet, he bore the sin of many and did what? Interceded for the rebels. Praise God. He was numbered among the rebels, but the reality is, Jesus should never have been identified with that kind of threat. He had told the crowds, no, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And give to God what belongs to God. He had distanced himself from being seen as a zealot or a rebel. Furthermore, he had taught peacefully. That's what he says. I was in the temple every day teaching peacefully. You could have come there. Why this show of force? Why the swords and clubs like I'm some sort of lestes? The end of verse 49 says, Scripture must be fulfilled, which leads us into the ominous verse 50 where we read, then they all deserted him and ran away. So not only was Jesus betrayed by treachery and by misrepresentation, but he was thirdly betrayed by abandonment. 
The Greek makes the point emphatic. They all left. James Edwards writes, this seemingly innocuous statement of verse 50 carries an incriminating wallop. Now to cut the disciples a little bit of slack, there really wasn't much else they could have done. The arrest party came for Jesus. Following behind Jesus didn't turn out very well for Peter. And Jesus made it plain they weren't supposed to fight with swords and clubs. So what could they do? But nevertheless, the bravery and the bravado of all the previous verses still kind of haunts us, doesn't it? Like they had all drank from the cup together at the Last Supper. They had all pledged to die for him in verse 31 of this chapter. And by verse 50, they all deserted Jesus. Uniquely, some of you have felt this sense of loneliness when everyone around you leaves. You know how deep and dark loneliness can feel. I've been speaking with some of you who have been fighting that feeling of loneliness in your life. Jesus felt every bit of that loneliness as his closest friends all left. We even have the curious tack-on verses of verses 51 and 52, where Mark tells us there was a young man who had followed him with nothing but a linen cloth to wear. And when the arresting party sees Jesus, he became the first streaker in recorded history. <laughs> it's a seemingly odd additional note. This is the, this is the fun I have as pastor. I get to to read about these things, one commentator listed 13 possibilities for who this dude was, all right? 13 possibilities of the unnamed streaker. Systematically, they go through narrowing it down uh, to perhaps uh, an unknown follower of Jesus, right? How helpful is that? But that was, if you were wondering, option number nine. Um, But then view number one of that commentator was that it was John Mark himself. Some of you have heard that uh, before. And it seems like Based on circumstantial evidence, that's a good guess. Uh, The young man was not one of the 12 disciples. He was obviously a man of means because only the wealthy would wear linen uh, undergarments like this uh, underneath their tunics. The fact that he only had a linen cloth suggests the possibility he got dressed in a hurry and maybe lived nearby. And we know from other accounts that Mark's mother had a room in Jerusalem and Jerusalem, and she was a a woman of means such that many people could meet. So they kind of piece all these other circumstantial things together and they say, maybe, just maybe, it was Mark. But once again, I draw you back to my original point. Mark cares far less about telling us who this man was than what he did. His naked flight from the garden serves like an underline, an exclamation point of the fact literally everyone left Jesus alone. He was abandoned by those he loved. So it leads me to return to the question I asked at the beginning of the message today. Have you ever been betrayed by someone you love? Jesus certainly has. But allow me to ask you a different question as I close today. Have you ever been loved by someone you betrayed? Have you ever been loved 
by someone you betrayed. I suppose it's possible in human terms to experience that kind of radical love, but I'm here to tell you this morning, you've never been loved like this. You've never been loved by someone you've betrayed so treacherously. Trace this thread of love with me in Jesus' unflinching devotion to fulfill the Scripture. He knew full well he would be betrayed by Judas's kiss. He knew in advance he would be numbered among the lestes, the transgressors, the criminals, and crucified between them. He knew he would be arrested like an insurrectionist. He knew that the sheep would all scatter when the confrontation took place. Scripture, Jesus says, must be fulfilled. One of those scriptures was Zechariah 13, 7. Sword, awake against my shepherd, against the man who is my associate. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. Jesus knew he would be betrayed by treachery, misrepresentation, and abandonment. And yet, though the shepherd was betrayed, Jesus loved the sheep. Though the shepherd was betrayed, Jesus loved the sheep. Friends, we have all rejected, misrepresented, or abandoned Jesus in varying forms and in varying degrees. We are all traitors who have handed over Jesus to crucifixion by our sin. Our sin was his kiss of death. Our rebellion is an outright treachery to God. Some of us act as zealots who have perhaps in one form or another pigeonholed Jesus to fit our motives and our agendas. Our ambitions thus make a mockery of his mission to seek and save the lost. Can you confess today our motives are not always pure and they are often misaligned. In some form or fashion, perhaps you have found that You've abandoned the shepherd when association with his name would cause others to taunt you. Our courage is far from perfect. And yet, despite the fact Jesus knew his sheep would be scattered and that we all in one form or fashion have betrayed him, he loved us, as scripture says, he loved us to the end. The Bible teaches that God loves the world in this way. I saw it on Brother Adam's tie this morning. God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Jesus died for traitors and betrayers. Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of Romans 5, 8 says, But God put his love on the line for us by offering his son in sacrificial death while we were of no use whatever to him. Wow. While we were of no use whatever to him, God showed his love by sending his son to die for us. God loves the sheep who scatter. Jesus promised his father to gather every single one of them into his fold. In John chapter 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life 
for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd, Jew and Gentile. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. I hope you see in John that the love of a sovereign savior will save his sheep. No betrayer was catching him off guard. No mob was prevailing over Jesus by force. Scripture says he could have called tens of thousands of angels to fight for him. And no scattered, naked, helpless little sheep abandoning him in that moment would keep Jesus from loving each of them so much that he would die for them. Dear friend, have you received the gift of love from the one you have betrayed? Jesus is marched to a bloody cross by the hands of those who arrested him proves God's incredible love for those who receive the gift of his son's death for their treasonous betrayal called sin. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it gets worse. The wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve for betraying Christ. But praise God, the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord for all who will put their trust in him. So as I close today, I want to invite you If you have not already done so, repent of your sinful rejection and betrayal of God and his ways and receive the love of the good shepherd today.